0: Welcome to Wandering Toward Wisdom, a podcast that is part of Tactical Faith Ministries. We welcome you to listen here, or to check out TacticalFaith.com. Uh, I am Travis.
1: I'm Joel. And today we're going to start digging into uh, our wandering towards wisdom. And as we mentioned in the previous podcast, you know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And... We also ask the question: What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem, or what does philosophy have to do with Christianity? And so, Travis and I want to get you to start thinking uh, about some things. Um, first question: We want we want you guys to think about is what is the gospel? Just 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 take a minute and think about it. Uh, what when someone says the gospel? What are the things that come to your mind? Yeah,
0: that's, I think that's a far more difficult question than a lot of people, a lot of people, uh, uh, generally think of. If you were to share the gospel with someone, uh, what would be the things that you would say? Um, and maybe I don't know if we should have a, a long quiet time here for people to reflect on it, but what specifically? What does the gospel have to do with? being a disciple. Um, find at the end of Matthew, Christ gives a command to to his followers to go make disciples. What is a disciple, and what does the gospel have to do with being a disciple?
1: And when we ask, what does it mean to be a disciple? Are we just talking about a set of beliefs? That if you hold this set of beliefs, that makes you a disciple? Or is there something more to it? than that.
0: Right. Well, as, as we all know, even the demons believe, uh, a set of beliefs, um, they have some of the right facts and they shudder. And so there's a, there's a tricky thing here about, um, it seems like there's a series of facts that, that are important for being a Christian. We might say in using philosophy speak that they're a necessary condition to believe, to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, uh, to believe that Jesus died for our sins, um, which is a, kind of a strange idea, um, uh, but what precisely does that mean? How does forgiveness relate to Christ's sacrifice? But what does any of that have to do with following Jesus, with following him? Um, after all, that's that's what a disciple is, right? One who follows and so these are these are a series of questions that I think are 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 should cause us uh, to pause for a moment and to think um, I have encountered many unbelievers who know all the details of the gospel but when they talk about it it sounds strange it sounds like that's not the god we believe in uh, even though you're saying all the right words it's as if it's as if they're presented wrong and the God that you talk about when you present the gospel is a God that I, I I could not love. And yet it seems that at the heart of being a disciple is to love God and love your neighbor. So what does the gospel have to do with loving God, with becoming the kind of person who loves God and becoming the kind of person who loves our neighbor?
1: Now, now, now hold on a minute. Before we start talking about you know loving god and loving be kind of the kind of person who loves god and loves your neighbor maybe we should talk about the motivation that someone would have for wanting to do that why would someone want to love god be the, be that kind of person be a better person uh, what what would be driving that person
0: well I mean, that seems like a really good question but let me uh, let me raise you one what is the motivation for someone wanting to embrace the gospel at all for accepting the gospel accepting Christ sacrifice.
1: I, I mean, if, if we're going to, you know, think about those end times movies that, uh, that were made in the seventies, you know, it's like we, we want to not have to be around for the tribulation or we want to escape hell or something like that. Um, at least that, that seems to be what those movies were communicating. Yeah,
0: it seems, I, I remember being quite terrified from those. Um, Yes. It, it seems to me that that one of the one of the reasons why Jesus spoke so strangely um and, and, and was was so misunderstood is that he wasn't concerned necessarily about a group of people acquiring the right information about him. He was very concerned about about the transformation of the heart. And I think Christians would, would very quickly agree with that. And we see that we see evidence of this but even when evidence was presented in a, in a very powerful way. So the most, maybe the most obvious one is Jesus' resurrection. But when he raised Lazarus from the dead, the response of the Jewish leaders who recognized that he had raised Lazarus from the dead, which seems like it would make you pause and think, well, maybe we should listen to this guy. Their response was, we now need to kill two men instead of one. And so, uh, he just had become particularly dangerous with this evidence. Right. New information does not necessarily change a person's heart. It doesn't have an effect on a motive. But isn't there something in the gospel that transforms us? That would it's actually calling us to transform our motives.
1: And and, and not just transform our our uh, motives, but to to uh, turn us into a kind of people that. Um, Live life in a particular way in the here and now, not just into the future, but but something meaningful about our present life that uh, that the gospel should should change, and not just our ultimate destination.
0: Right. It's not so. It's not simply a good uh, retirement strategy. It is it is meant to be something transformative now. Um, th- the difference between someone who who lives it up now and the person who. Uh, gives up stuff now so they can live it up later. There's just a little more patience in the one, but that has nothing to do with a motive of self, self-sacrificial love and so forth. Right. Um, and so the, the question, the question that we're, we're wrestling with is what does it mean? Is there something we can do? Is there something we can teach that can transform people's lives and cause them to become better people? Is there some way that we present the gospel perhaps? Is there information we've left out? Um, and uh, we're not going to run into heresy here, hopefully, but is there information we've left out? Are there, are there things we've left out that when, if we presented them, it could actually have a transformative effect on people's lives?
1: If, if I'm not mistaken, there's a dialogue by Plato where he, he wrestles with this question about, uh, can virtue be taught? Can, can you teach people to be better? Can, is that something that, um, that's possible? And um, Travis is going to give us a a little brief uh, excursus explaining the the Mino uh, dialogue and what that has to do with virtue.
0: Plato's Mino is a dialogue about virtue. It begins with the question from the visitor Mino to Socrates about whether virtue can be taught. In Greek, the word for virtue means something like excellence, so to be virtuous is to be excellent at being human, and the question, therefore, is can one teach another person how to be excellent at being a human? Now, the dialogue divides nicely into three parts. The first part begins with Socrates' Socrates' response to Mino's question. Mino asks if virtue can be taught, and Socrates proceeds to answer that he does not even know what virtue is, and so does not know whether it possesses the quality of being able to be taught. Mino, believing that he knows quite well what virtue is, responds in surprise and thus begins the classic Socratic dialogue. Socrates asks Mino what virtue is. Mino answers. Socrates discusses the answer with Mino until Mino must admit that the answer is insufficient. And then Mino tries another answer and so on. This leads Mino to a place of recognizing his own inability to answer the question. While he had at first scoffed at Socrates for claiming not to know what virtue is, Mino now finds himself at a loss. He first blames Socrates for making him go numb, and then this leads Socrates uh, to suggest that they seek together what virtue is. Now, Mino responds with what is a kind of classic problem for learning. He says, how will you look for it, Socrates, when you do not know at all what it is? How will you aim to search for something you do not know at all? If you should meet with it, how will you know that this is the thing that you did not know? Socrates takes this question seriously. If you do not know what something is, how can you recognize it when you see it? If I said, Go find my sister, and you knew nothing about my sister, you could not meet her and never know what, or you could meet her and never know that you had. With my sister, though, you'd have the benefit of being able to ask every female if she's my sister and so on and so forth. This isn't the case with virtue. Mino has, there's, there's no one to ask, for you can't ask virtue whether it is, in fact, virtue, except perhaps through a Socratic dialogue. But Mino has just suggested that searching for virtue is a hopeless task. You either know what it is or you'll never know what it is. This leads directly into the middle section of the dialogue and to Plato's famous idea of recollection. So the second part begins uh, with Socrates answering Meno by making a rather strange suggestion. There are indeed things we know, and there might be things we can never know, but we also know of things that we both kind of know and kind of don't know. Those are things that we once knew but have forgotten. He then proceeds to lead a mathematically ignorant servant boy through a fairly complex geometry problem. He leads him not by telling him anything, but simply by asking questions and helping the boy to see what it is that he's saying, what the boy himself is saying. So the problem he gives to the boy is to figure out the length of the side of a square that has doubled the area of a two by two square. Now the boy responds immediately with his first seemingly rational thought, four. If you have a square whose sides are two, And if you want to double the area, just double the length of the side and you have four. Well, that is obviously wrong. A four by four square is four times the area of a two by two square. Now the boy's at a loss, but tries again. If you think it through, the length cannot be two or smaller because two is the length of the original square. It cannot be four or larger because that is too large. The only reasonable answer then is three. So he tries three. Socrates, again, just by asking questions, helped helps the boy to recognize that his answer is wrong. A three by three square whose area is nine is a little bit more than twice the area of a two by two square. We want a square whose area is eight. So what is the answer? The boy, like Mino in the first section, is at a loss. But Socrates, simply through showing him in images what the boy was saying and asking questions, leads him to recognize that the diagonal from one corner of a two by two square to the other is the length of the side of a square would double the area now a couple of things should be noted first socrates states clearly after this to mino's agreement that the man who does not know has within himself true opinions about the things that he does not know the important thing is that it is the one who does not know that has true beliefs within him that he does not know because when people think they know and they know falsely like mino and the servant boy before they were questioned by socrates Uh, that that causes them to not to be able to see those true beliefs or discover them. In this case, they likely just have half-truths or outright errors and are unable ever to get to the point of learning the truth. Recognition of one's own ignorance is therefore the starting point of all proper searching. The second thing to note is that the servant boy recognized the line, but never answered the question as we might have wanted him to. That is, he never stated the length of the side. He simply recognized the correct line. And this was certainly purposely written this way by Plato. Plato and Socrates were familiar with mathematics and specifically with the idea of irrational numbers, which had been discovered by that time by the Pythagoreans. The length of the side is in fact the square root of eight. But the square root of eight is not the length itself, but simply an operation that tells you how to get to the actual length, which is approximately 2.83. But the length is an irrational number, meaning that it is a non-repeating infinite decimal. It is a number that can never be said, at least not completely, not precisely. It might be that Plato is presenting for us an analogy for those important questions, those most important questions, in fact, questions about virtue, the good, and the beautiful, those questions that tell us who we are and give us a sense of direction and place in the world. Socrates ends this with a powerful and pointed statement, this section. I do not insist that my argument is right in all other respects, but I would contend at all costs, both in word and deed, as far as I could, that we will be better men, braver and less idle if we believe that one must search for the things one does not know, rather than if we believe that it's not possible to find out what we do not know and that we must not look for it. In a way, Socrates is hinting that virtue is found in the pursuit of knowing virtue, which suggests as well that virtue begins with recognizing our own ignorance. For it is the one who knows how ignorant she is that can begin to learn, that is to begin to wonder. The third section uh, begins with Socrates suggesting that they get back to the original question, what is virtue? But Mino is tired of that question and he wants to get back to the, actually the original question, and that is whether virtue can be taught. Socrates responds very negatively to this. He says, if I were directing you, Mino, and not only myself, we would not have investigated whether virtue is teachable or not before we had investigated what virtue itself is. But because you do not even attempt to rule yourself in order that you may be free, but you try to rule me and do so, I will agree with you for what can I do? They then proceed to do something called the method of hypothesis, which seems to be a way of trying to get a quick answer without really understanding the topic. And most importantly, as Socrates just stated, this method seems to arise out of a lack of virtue. Now, the conclusion of this third part is that virtue cannot be taught. But Socrates ends by saying something like this. But if someone could teach virtue, he would be tremendously different than most people even those people we tend to respect. Obviously, this is meant to cast doubt on the conclusion that virtue cannot be taught. It suggests, though, that virtue cannot be taught in the usual way.
1: Maybe we need to ask, uh, like, like Mino, um, if we're asking the wrong question. Or asking a question too soon, when we ask if we can teach people to be better, to teach people to be disciples, to be good, to love God, to love their neighbor, um, that might not be the right question. Maybe we need to first get clear on uh, what it means to be good, what it means to love God, what it means to to love your neighbor, uh, what it means to be a disciple. Um, maybe we. We think we know it better than we actually do.
0: Yeah, it seems like it seems like my, my experience, uh, most of my life in Christianity, has been there. And this is not this is not a bad thing. Um, maybe maybe a uh, a little bit of imbalance, but there's been such an emphasis on evangelism that the development of disciples kind of goes by the wayside it's sort of sort of tossed out as an obvious it's it's obvious what you should do you know you become a christian uh stop stop doing bad things uh you know read your bible pray every day and you know don't drink smoke or chew or go with girls who do or something like that um which is what i grew up with uh and it it uh the idea on what it is to be a disciple, it's almost like it was so obvious what it meant to be a di- disciple, right? If Jesus saved you from your sins, of course you're going you're gonna to love him. Uh, of course you're going to love your neighbor. And that's just simple. Anybody who's ever gone to a church ever and been involved maybe in any element of the administration realizes or saw a little bit of the seedy underbelly of what goes on at churches, uh, realizes that it's not quite that simple, that there's that there's a lot of animosity and anger among those who have been Christians perhaps for years.
1: Even. And, and, and what's, we're going to be very frustrating about, or even more frustrating about that seedy underbelly you talked about is that it's always couched in terms of loving God and loving neighbor, that, that these not so great things are often done in the name of loving God or in the name of loving the neighbor. Um, such that it, it's, it it seems to demonstrate that we don't know what we're talking about.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's – I remember a particular instance. I was a youth pastor, youth college pastor for a while. Maybe I shouldn't talk about this. Some people who listen to this might know sort of who I'm talking about. But nevertheless, I had this I had this run-in with, with – I'll just say a person. It um, wasn't exactly a person, but weird. anyway – We'll leave, we'll leave the specifics out, but I remember I remember this person who, in everything I could see in the way they were re- responding to me, it seemed it seemed like this person was very angry with me. Hate. I would I would even I even used the word hate, and and this person said, "I don't hate you, Travis. I love you in Jesus. I love you in Christ." And 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 at that moment, I realized one of us doesn't understand what love is or what it looks like. Um, Now I have my suspicions about which one of us is misunderstanding, but it's, but it's, you know, it could have been either one of us. Maybe, maybe we're, uh, maybe it's, it's not as clear as we might think. And in fact, I think there's a lot of times when we even take the ideas of righteousness and so on and so forth. And it's, and it's, we emphasize the sins of other people, right? The church is filled with, with, with a lot of sinners, obviously. Um, And yet the church has a tendency to emphasize particular sorts of sins that we exclude and so on and so forth. And there's other ones that we include, particularly if they're the sins of a person who happens to have a lot of money to tithe. And so um, there's there's a... Our own sense of virtue, I think, can be a little bit warped. And even the... I mean, the, the concepts of virtue can be infused with almost their opposites when we talk about them.
1: Yes. I I mean, I, I, this isn't the episode for it, but at some point uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the idea of righteous anger and whether it's actually possible. I, I tend to think if it is actually possible, I'm not capable of it. Um, But that's a discussion for another time. But, you know, we, we, we can get worked up and we do it in the name of righteousness, um, but I'm not sure what that ha- has to do with us be- us becoming more virtuous personally or actually helping someone else become more virtuous.
0: Right. And so if if we are if we are in error and so many of the, uh, some of the ideas, everything from anger to love, to so on and so forth, uh, or the idea of righteous anger, I should say, to be specific, uh, if they're so easily corruptible, are are we unable to really understand what the virtues are? How how do we learn? How do we learn it? How do we come to, to recognize what the truth is? Are we, are we stuck where Mino would say that we're stuck where, uh, where Mino suggests we might be stuck where if you don't know what it is, then you're not going to recognize it because the only version of love you know is what you've experienced. And if if all love is corrupted, then you know, how can you ever know what love is? of course, we have one exemplar who uh, loved perfectly, even though it's hard to see Christ love perfectly, right? We can, we can interpret his motives. You can, you can place bad motives on Jesus's actions. I mean, look at some of the people who have, you know, so, you know, searched for the quote unquote historical Jesus. They take some of the same actions and comments that he makes and they attribute different motives to them, right? He's, he was a military messiah who was, you know, confused or whatever, or he's some sort of hippie or something. Um, but, uh, so, uh, even even the exemplar can be misunderstood. Well,
1: well I, I think one, one thing that we have to stop and, and ask ourselves is, are we looking to use virtue as a tool to gain something else, or are we looking to... Become virtuous, because if we're looking to use it as a tool, then we're looking to make it fit for our purposes rather than to fit ourselves for virtue's purposes or for the gospel's purpose or, or however you want to frame that.
0: Yeah, that's really good, and and I think I think again, and this is maybe just this is this is pretty cynical, but I think we experience we all kind of experience it. Um, we, we experience it in all different realms of belief systems. Whenever we co- come upon someone who thinks differently than us, we feel this tremendous pressure to get them to agree with us. And I think there's a little bit of selfish fear that's going on there where, I don't know, something like we want more people to be on our side. And I think a lot of times when we speak the gospel, um, it could arise from that that sort of attitude of wanting to get more people on our side. Um that's, again, us using the idea of virtue, following, following Christ, uh, embracing the gospel, becoming a disciple, um, almost as a way to just to get more people to agree with our worldview or something like that. Um, what would it mean for us to, to surrender ourselves to virtue? And how do I get my own heart to be transformed? Because in as much as I want to tell other people about the gospel and get them to love God and love neighbor, if I just spend 30 seconds reflecting on my own motives and the way I I interact with people, I realize I'm not doing a very good job of this um, myself. What is it that I can learn from scripture? Is there something? Or do I simply have to, uh, as many people might say, pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to transform me? Because... And I know that's that's kind of a quick, easy response, um, but Scripture is constantly this—it's filled with commands, right? Um, so it seems to me that there's something about exhortation. There's something about iron sharpening iron. There's something about encouraging one another to love and good deeds, right? These are these are all over Scripture. Paul doesn't just, you know, write greetings to the church. Pray that the Holy Spirit transforms you to live the right life. See you later, Paul. <laughs> right it's filled with all these other sorts of things right and so there's something about teaching there's something we can learn but what does that look like and it seems to me that seems to me that one of the things socrates says is and if we can learn something from socrates here um you got to start with with your own with recognizing one's own ignorance And yet not becoming a despairing ignorant person, right? I'm ignorant. I don't know what it is. I guess I'm just going to be ignorant the rest of my life. But rather allowing the recognition that I'm not sure what the answer is to excite me and energize me to pursue it. And, and there's even a hint, in Socrates, that the pursuit of it is what virtue. The pursuit of virtue is what virtue is. There's, there's a hint there, but we can't. That's that's maybe another podcast.
1: And and it's worth noting that when we when Socrates says ignorance, when we're talking about ignorance, we're not saying the I have no idea. You know, I I couldn't tell virtue from a, a red big balloon or something like that. That's that's not at all what what we're what Socrates is saying. That's not what we're saying. But there's a sense in which I know there's more to to virtue. I know there's more to the gospel. I know there's more to the life of a disciple than I'm presently, than I presently understand or i am presently living. And so, because there's more to it than we presently have, we got to keep pushing in. Um, it's it's we're not the final authority on these things. That there's always more that we can can grow, um, more that we can understand.
0: Yeah, and I think I really think this this whole idea is reflected actually in if if you look at scripture some of the broad themes of scripture so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We find that all over scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we find it in several places in scripture. And what's the op, what what does it mean to be in the fear of the Lord? Well, it means to recognize one's place before God. And uh the, it, and that's the fear of the Lord is is presented as the opposite of the of the the beginning of or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well what what's the beginning of foolishness? The unwillingness to accept uh, to accept critique, to recognize where you're wrong, to be taught, to be educated. You might say the beginning of foolishness is the embracing that I, is the reaching out and claiming that I know what good and evil is and therefore I am on, on equal footing with God in my knowledge of virtue. Right? We call that the fall, Genesis three. And if that's so, if that's the case, the fear of the Lord is a recognition that I am not on equal land, equal standing with God. I am far below Him. I have something to learn. Do Christians have something to learn? Maybe in our speaking about the gospel, we're talking, we're thinking too much about can I teach this to someone and cause them to get cause them to get it, and we don't recognize that there's perhaps something that we haven't learned.
1: Or something that we're learning
0: or something that we're in the process of learning.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and even that stance I think changes things. Cause when you, when you start learning something new, um, you know, and you realize you don't know everything, but you, you are excited about it. You, you, you are enthusiastic. You, you start to invite people along on your journey because you're so, interested and excited in it um i mean both travis and i are kind of runners and um you know i've started that more recently and as I started, you know, I found myself wanting to talk to people and tell them that about my running and the different things I've been trying to do. And then I realized that it's really annoying when you just talk about how many miles you've run and how fast you've run and all that kind of stuff. But that there's more to it. Than, and when you when you meet someone who has who's on that journey, whether ahead or behind you, and they want to start talking about those kinds of things and exchange ideas and ways to help each other it, it it's, it's a different approach. It's a different conversation than if I can convince I'm the ultimate runner and I'm going to tell everyone exactly how to do it.
0: Right, which is the problem I have when I talk about minimalist running. <laughs> uh, you should be a minimalist runner. Stop doing whatever you're doing. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a really good good way of putting it. And, and really, it sounds to me like what you're saying is at the heart of what leads us into virtue is being is having that sense of wonder and joy. The sense that I have some to learn and the sense that this is wonderful news. This, is, this fills me with wonder when I see this. Because perhaps the greatest sign that we fail to understand the gospel is when it has become old hat for us. It's become a domesticated idea. It is no longer shocking to me. Shocking, not in a, necessarily a bad way, but sh- but surprising to me. Um, and so perhaps that's where we need to begin. Um, begin this whole discussion. Uh, begin this whole learning is in recognizing that uh, we should be led by our wondering, and not uh, not believe that we've grown up and possessed all the truth.
1: That sounds like a great idea to me.
0: All right. Well, uh, that will uh, bring it to this podcast, this episode. We will uh, see you next time. This is Travis.
1: This is Joel. And thanks for listening.